All right. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but if you've been watching the news or tracking with anything that's going on in the world, um, if we've if we've thought we've lived in a peaceable world, then that can can feel like that's that's starting to to crumble. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of chaos going on in the world, and so I want to just uh, look at it a little bit in light of uh, human history. Um, as many of you have heard, war going on in the Middle East right now between Israel and Hamas, this militant uh, Islamic Iranian proxy, which is a lot of words, which means Iran kind of controls the ins and outs of funding and weaponry. And it's a very complicated, very sad situation that's happening with, with tons of death and tons of uh, injustice. And there's a lot of people throwing around kind of biblical prophetic fulfillments and, and kind of somehow, sometimes losing sense of the humanity of it all. And it's hard to know up from down, left from right, conflicting reports that we hear coming from different camps. Um, but we know Jesus promised there will be wars and rumors of wars, but these things are just merely the birth pains of a creation that's groaning for redemption. And so we shouldn't be surprised. We live in a broken world and, and these things are uh, par for the course. On top of these, this headline-dominating war that's happening in the Middle East, in, particularly in the land of Israel and Palestine, um, there is an ongoing conflict in Ukraine with Russia, as we've been tracking this a couple years now in the making, there with tons of history and, and stuff we don't necessarily understand, uh, but still so sad. And then there's a war, I don't know if you saw, a war in Sudan, it's happening right now, a massive civil war where over 10,000 people have been killed and nearly 6 million refugees leaving Sudan, uh, kind of on foot as we speak. Um, in, in, Azer, in Azerbaijan, uh, over 100,000 Armenians are, are, are fleeing as refugees because of fear of ethnic cleansing. Uh, so they're, they're on foot just fleeing with nowhere to go uh, because there's a, that ethnic racial conflict a fear of being totally wiped out. Uh, in Pakistan, due to the, 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 the Af- Afghan uh, crisis with the U.S. withdrawing, what is this? That's just some decorations. <laughs> Attacking my hair. Uh, so Pakistan has ordered nearly 2 million Afghan refugees to leave immediately, to go back to Afghanistan, where uh, things are not great. And so there's another piece of just violent ethnic uh, Tension and, 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 and the, the, the feeling of, of, of how, what could happen. Um, so, hey, with all that, good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, uh, this world is broken. Hey, welcome. Come on in. So I bring all this up. Uh, go ahead and, yeah, just find a seat. We're just getting into it. Um, so we got a couple more here. Yeah, you got it. I know. Thank you. So, what I've just kind of kind of tried to hit at a little bit is, is all the conflict that's going on in the world. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's massive amounts of ethnic cleansing threats and and people on the move. Millions and millions of people refugees of, of where they had, had, had wanted to be. 
Um, so I bring all this up to make the point that war, racial and ethnic animosity, violence, tribalism, they're not blips in the radar of an otherwise peaceable world. But they're actually um, one of the defining features of our broken world. There was a study done a couple years ago of kind of recorded history. The last 3,400 years of recorded history, kind of going back in, in, into the biblical times. And, uh, and it showed that of the 3,400 years of recorded history, there's been 268 years, or about 8% of the time, uh, it has humanity not been in active conflict with each other. Uh, so, so war is, is normal. War is the, 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 one of the main things that, that we do as humans is we fight each other for a variety of reasons, for whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, it's kind of always up to dispute. But the fact is that we find war to be one of the things that we do best, or one of the things that we are most prone to as a, as a species, as, a, as, as humanity. But it, it wasn't always this way, and it doesn't have to be this way. And yet in the world as it is, it is, there's an inevitability to it. Because again, we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world where sin, this foreign entity, has so corrupted and distorted God's good creation that it's, that it's hardly recognizable. We can see the beauty of God in a, a beautiful sunset, we can, in, in, a, in a baby's laugh, in, in, the, in the beauty of love. In the beauty, of, there's, there's beauty in the world, but there's such a tarnish over God's good creation because of sin that sometimes it's hard to see through the cracks of, the broken, of our broken world into the beauty of, of what God has originally intended. And here we have uh, the good news, uh, the gospel, is that God, who made the world and called it good, did not abandon the world to its own rebellion. But he actually, through the election of of ancient Israel and then through the fulfillment of Israel in the Messiah, Jesus, he's come in the flesh to redeem his broken world by being broken himself. So he uses the, the, the actual sin and rebellion of the world. He subjects himself to it to subvert its power. He dies on the cross as a sort of enthronement of the king of the universe to be subjected to human war and, and violence so that he could, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, defeat the, the very foundation of death and violence by raising from the dead. That's the claim of Christians. That's, that's the foundation of our faith, is that God became man in Jesus, took on the sin of the world, and, and onto himself, died carrying our sin with us into the grave, resurrected from the grave. Now all who look to him can receive the, the life of God, the eternal life that's promised uh, to, to, that, that was intended to, to Adam and Eve, but we lost due to our rebellion. We can receive the life of God through our faith in the work of Jesus. That's kind of the, the general understanding of what Jesus has done for us. So as a church... We believe the Bible teaches both that Jesus came, he died, he died for the sins of the world, that we would be forgiven, that we would be reconciled to God. And, that, and that, that the church, the people of God, were then to be the ambassadors, the representatives to the world of what God is like. But we also believe that 
in a day that what we don't know, but that the Bible says is very soon, that the risen Lord will actually return to the earth to eradicate the world of evil and to set up his eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. That's, that's the hope of the gospel, is that this world as we know it is not how it's going to be forever. But there, but there will be a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is coming when all human brokenness, sin, cosmic powers that are fallen, everything will be judged rightly by God. He will separate the good and the bad, the sheep and the goats, along the lines of Jesus and whether or not those who've, 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 who've looked to him have been forgiven and restored in relationship to God. However, what we do in our, in our lives still matters. Sometimes we can think, oh, I have faith in Jesus, so I can, I can just kind of go about my life. So I want to look at a couple scenes from the Bible that, where Jesus explicitly says, what we do with our lives is, is really matters. That, that how we steward the gift of our life has eternal consequences for, for what happens it, with, with us not only in our life now, but in eternity. So, um, so we, we live in light of that day, that the day of his appearing, that we are to be people who long for his appearing, as it says in 2 Timothy 4.8. For a time is coming, Acts 3.21, where God will restore everything. So everything that's broken, everything that's corrupt, everything that's evil, everything that's uh, not as it should be, God will restore. He will make it all right. And he, and he begins that with the resurrection of Jesus and then all who are, who are brought into that, that new humanity. So we're a part of God's putting right project for the world as we are reconciled to God in Jesus. So um, toward the end of the gospel of Matthew. So what you're holding in front of you is where we're going to get to, but I'm going to kind of try to catch us up to speed on when and what the context is of when Jesus says this. It's toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. Jesus brings this heavy rebuke to the religious system of his day. There's the, there's the, there's the, he calls them the hypocrites, the actors, the people who, who say that they're godly, but they, they, they live totally different. Totally different. They live uh, this these kind of two-faced life. They try to be really religious and try to take all the uh, honor and respect, but they cheat and they lie and they steal from the poor. It's kind of this, this, this thing that Jesus is like, no, you are totally misrepresenting God. So he's, he's bringing all these woes or these judgments against the Pharisees and the religious system of his day. And then he's kind of at the temple in Jerusalem and his disciples are still, they're enamored by the grandeur of the temple. Have you ever seen a building that you're just like, wow, that is, a, that is beautiful. That is amazing. Who, how, did, how long did it take to build? Like some, there, are, there are architectural feats that man is capable of that, uh, that are amazing and that are part of the way we reflect God. That God is a creator. And when we create things, we're, we're reflecting God. But, but, but in this instance, the temple was this immaculate structure. But Jesus said, You're, it's empty. God is not in the midst of it. It's a broken, empty system. And so the disciples are like, wow, look at this temple. And Jesus goes, not, there's a time coming when not one stone will be left on another. Every stone will be torn apart from this temple. And, and it, was, it was part of what got him killed. This sort of rhetoric that would say that the temple where God is, was, was to dwell would be torn down. Well, it turns out 
in AD 70, so about 40 years after he had said this, the Romans came and actually completely destroyed the temple. And everything he said about its destruction came to pass to a T. And, and, and it's, just, it's kind of this, one of, the, one of the prophetic, that is, Jesus is saying what's going to happen, and then it happens. One of the things that happens in, in, uh, in Jesus' life that really um, fulfills so much of what he was saying in his earthly ministry. So, Jesus gives these preliminary signs. There's going to be war and rumors of wars. The wickedness is going to increase. Um, People will uh, hate you. Um, He kind of gives all these things are going to happen. But don't don't be alarmed, he says. Because all these things must take place. But it's just the birth pains, again, of of creation growing. I'm not going to return. You'll see these things and, and, and to track with them. But don't be caught off guard. Don't think that that, that means that, I'm, that it's my time to return. These are just birth pains. And in fact, in the first part of Matthew 24, he lists nine of them. And, and many commentators of the Bible will say that all nine of these, except for one, has, was fulfilled right at the destruction of the temple. The only one of the signs that Jesus gave, excuse me, that wasn't fulfilled is Matthew 24, 14 that says, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So what it means is that the the last remaining task of the church to, to precede the return of Jesus is to see every nation on earth have a, a reliable gospel witness. And as we, as we understand it globally, there's about 2 billion people on the earth. We already got 8 billion people on the earth. There's about 2 billion people who've never had a chance to hear the good news of Jesus. They're called unreached, um, unengaged. There's no, there's no church in, in that vicinity. There's no, there's, it's closed off to Christian witness. And so that's why uh, we would say that, that missionary work to, to go to the unreached peoples of the earth is so important. Yes, we have tons of things right here in our community that we need to address. And we need to see economic reform. We need to see things strengthened and lives restored and flourishing humanity is God's desire. But the pinnacle of that desire is that, that we would flourish by knowing God through Jesus. So a, a, the tip of the spear is that we would actually make him known and, and, and allow the gospel to go to the, the ends of the earth so that people can come to know Jesus. And, and then the work of kind of that holistic development can supplement the knowing of God in the gospel. Does that make sense? So <clears throat> here we go. He talks about all these things are going to happen in Matthew 24. And I'd encourage you to look into it and we can talk more about it. But here's what I want to get to. He ends up saying, no one knows the day or the time, except the Father, when, when, when Christ will return. So he gives these couple, a couple parables. He says, in one, he says um, that, that it will, it'll, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah, where people were eating and drinking, and all of a sudden a flood swept in. That, that the, the return of Jesus will catch many off guard, completely by surprise. It's not like, you know, we might say, oh, there's war, things are getting worse, whatever, whatever. But for the majority of people... It is completely as if the day, today is the same as tomorrow, but tomorrow everything changed because, because, because God came. He also says <clears throat> that um, he, kind of, he gives these, these parables. One is um, 
the, the parable of the, the housekeeper. And, and, and then he says, the, excuse me, the, the, the owner of the house comes at, an, at a time when you least expect it. And so, you know, there's, there's a servant that is in charge of the house. He thinks he's going he's to be a long time. And so he starts to party. He starts to say, hey, let's just, we got the keys. We got, the, we got, we got everything we need. Let's throw a party. And then the master comes back at the moment he least expected. He comes back sooner than expected. And he's severely punished for his total lack of responsibility. The next scene is Jesus talking about the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And it's kind of a little bit archaic because in our culture we don't have these same traditions. But you have five bridesmaids who were wise, five who were foolish, five who brought. So the, the tradition is the bridesmaids go out to the edge of town where it's completely dark. And the groomsmen comes at a late hour back to the, to the part, to the reception, the wedding reception. And there's this big party, kind of all night party. Well, the ten bridesmaids go out. Five have extra oil because thinking that it's going to take a long time. I might not have enough. Five just bring the oil that's in their lamps. Well, then they all, they all fall asleep. Five of them say to the other five, hey, give us some of your oil. Mine ran out. And they say, no, actually, you weren't prepared. And so we can't give you our, our oil. Go into town and buy more. While they're gone into town, the groom, the bride, the groom comes. And the par- it's a parable, right? So it, Jesus, the point he's making is, we need to be prepared for it to take longer than expected. And, and a part of it is storing up oil is nobody can, you can't buy somebody else's relationship to God. Right? If, if you know, if you cultivate a relationship with God where you're seeking him in the morning and, in, and you're giving your life to him, I can't come to you and say, hey, uh, what can I do to buy what you've, what you've, what you've, the relationship that you have? You can't buy a relationship. It's, it's, it, you, you, it's cultivated. That's why they go and they try to buy more oil, but it's too late. And there's, it's, a, it's a dire warning saying you can't expect to get by. You have to be prepared for your own. You have to be responsible for your own spiritual life. Nobody else can do it for you. Okay, all that is happening. So the one is he comes sooner than expected. With the, with the bridesmaids, he comes later than expected. And then there's this scene right here that I want to read with us. So I'll read it out just off of the sheet. This is the kind of third parable Jesus tells. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven will be illustrated or can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from the trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest and I've earned two more. 
So the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? And at least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, the task here, we are to be occupied with. This is the parable, right? So he's not saying this literally happened, but he's using this story to make a larger point. And the point is that, w- that until whenever it is that Christ returns, until a master returns, we're to be occupied with good stewardship of all that he's loaned us, which means that my life is, is not my own. I've been given on loan, in a way, a life. And I'm responsible to steward that according to the master's intentions. Which means a good steward, what they do in, the, in this very common biblical language is a master entrusts a steward to invest his money in a way that represents the master's priorities. And, and, and in, in a way that they would do it. So if they say the master's gone, he's doing business somewhere else, and the steward then is a representative so he's supposed to handle the money in a way that the master would, which means he needs to know who the master is pretty, pretty well so that he will represent him in, in all of his dealings. And the hope is that he would actually make money through, through the exchange, right? So, so the good stewardship as it, as it goes is me saying, God, my life is yours. Everything I have is a gift from you. Now, how can I spend my life in a way that pleases you? How can I actually invest my life into eternal things and the things that really matter for your kingdom so that there was a, there's a reward, there's, some, there's, a, there's a return on investment. You've given me this life. I don't want to just bury it in the ground out of fear, but I want to actually spend it in a way that honors you. So there's three men, right, in the story. And they have three different levels of ability. So on one hand, Right? All men and women are created equal in, their, in our value. But here we have, <clears throat> and it might be encouraging, it might be discouraging, but we have an assessment that, that there was a varying levels of ability, that we're all not capable of the same things. Not only different, but actually some are capable of doing much more with their life than others. And it's not, about a, it's not a value judgment, but it's just recognizing I'm not going to compare myself left or right, but I'm saying, God, what you've given me, I want to make the most of. And somebody else, they might be way better at this than me. And I'm not mad about it. That's great for them. But I'm going to say soberly, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I can do. Let me do the absolute best that I can with it. So you have three men, three different levels of ability, but there's two responses, right? The third man... 
the first two, right? They, they invest, they have pretty identical responses. Hey, you did, the mo- you did the most you could with what I gave you. You doubled it. Enter into the re- reward of your master. But the third man, here's the point. He misunderstood the character of the master and tragically was unwilling to risk loss. <clears throat> the life of faith, the life of obedience to God is, involves risk. It involves being willing to, to step out in some ways. Entrust that the master, that, that God will provide. That if it's according to his interests, then he will take care of us along the way. The tragic error of this third man was in allowing himself to be paralyzed by his own fears. That the fear of, of his own life paralyzed him and it, and it allowed his faith to be diminished. And he actually accused the character of the master or the character of God for being why. Right? It's, a very, it's a tragic ending because he says, may what, you be, what, may what you have be taken and may you be cast into eternal punishment. What this means is you have completely missed the point of salvation. We're not just saved unto something, but we're saved for something. To actually be representatives of God in the earth. It's a, it's a high calling. It's a noble calling. And it's a calling with great responsibility. And it requires us to take whatever fears that we have for the future, whatever apprehension we have about our own life and abilities, to lay them at the feet of Jesus and to say, you are greater. That your purposes in my life are greater than whatever fear that I may have. And I, will, I refuse to be paralyzed by fear about whatever it is you're calling me to do because that would, in effect, be a, a, that I'm putting more faith in my own inability than in your ability to, to see through whatever you're calling me to do. <clears throat> okay, so three overarching points that, that, are, that, are, that are being expressed here. So like the master, God entrusts all of us with a portion of his resources, expecting them to act as good stewards of it. A good steward, again, is one who acts in accordance, represents the master well. So there's no getting around it. We are responsible for our own lives to God. And he's, and he's entrusted us with everything that we have. The two servants were rewarded because they faithfully discharged this commission. That they spent their lives. And there was, there was something to show for it. This third, this ser- this third servant failed to use the gifts God had given him for his service and was punished by separation from God. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a tension here, right? This is not a matter of earning my own salvation. There's, there's in, in, in Christian language, this is a kind of a, a continual caution. Jesus on the cross purchased my salvation. When I look to him, I receive his righteousness as my own. I'm clothed in his righteousness. So then when God looks at me, it's not my works that he sees, but it's the finished work of Jesus. So I'm, I'm made right with God, not because I do all the right things, but because Jesus perfectly obeyed God and I receive his cleansing, his washing, his righteousness. That's the basis of our faith. And yet what we see here is at, with grace as the foundation, there's a great responsibility for the believer to steward what they've been given. If grace is a gift, 
then we, then we are called to really steward and make the most of this gift we've been given. According to our ability, not according to somebody else's. Somebody else's calling, somebody else's capacity, somebody else's, how much money somebody else can make compared to me. None of that is, is valuable to compare. But it's according to my own ability. I have a great responsibility. This thing on thing keeps... Um, to, to, to use it well. <clears throat> my time, my talents, my treasures, all should be used in accordance with the kingdom of God and His purposes. What I'm getting at is this. To live in light of eternity really clarifies life. If I, if I live not just thinking about what I can do for me or how I can advance my own career or, or family goals or priorities kind of all referencing with me at the center. then I'm going to lose sight of the fact that God is the one who's given me everything. He's at the center of it. My purpose is to be brought into his story and to use everything I have to bring him glory. That's, that, that really clarifies my life so that I'm not just gr- groping and grasping for, for purpose or, or what I should do with my life. But he's already, he's already told me. He's already clarified it for me. And he could come at any moment. I want to live in the light of that day. And not just in fear and apprehension. And Oh no, he could come any minute and catch me off guard. But, but, to, but to actually long for his appearing. The Bible says that there's a reward of, of a crown of righteousness for those who long for his appearing. That we actually want him to come and, 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 and bring the full adoption as sons and daughters. We want him to come and set the world right. We want him to come and say, hey, you did a great job. Well done, my good and faithful servant. There's, these, there's a twofold thing. He says it to us in the righteousness of Jesus. Well done. You've been clothed with Jesus' righteousness. Well done. But we also are accountable for the deeds done in the body for the things that we say, for the thoughts that we think, for the, the, where our feet tread and the way that they reflect God and his values. And, and that's the sobering thing Jesus is trying to get at here. That we're to live in light of that day and it helps simplify all sorts of things that I could spend my money on, all sorts of things I could spend my time doing, all sorts of things I could spend my, the talents, the abilities God's given me are clarified when I live in light of, of eternity. And Jesus says in the beginning of Matthew 24, I'm telling you all these things so that you will not be alarmed, but so that you'll be watchful, that you'll be vigilant, that you'll be on the alert, not, not caught off guard, but, but attentive to the imminent return of Jesus, to the, the, the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. And that you would anticipate that day by, being, by yourself being a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. That's the call of the believer. Creation is groaning, says Romans 8, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. What We've been given the gift of His Spirit to represent God in the earth. There's so much here that we can unpack, but it's a, and it's a beautiful thing, but, it's, but it's, it's sobering to recognize, wow, God, you've given me this life. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to spend it on trivial things that have no eternal significance. But I want to spend it on the things that really matter. That's what, part of what Jesus is meaning when he says, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and die to yourself. That dying to yourself is dying to the things that you think really matter in a temporal way and living for the things that actually matter, which is the purposes of God in the world. I want to end with looking at this verse 
a couple verses from Titus 2. It's not on your paper. <clears throat> but, it, but Titus 2, 11 to 14, really, I'm good. I'm almost done here. I appreciate it. <clears throat> it really summarizes for us what I'm trying to get at. Again, Titus 2, 11 to 14. He says, he writes this. Paul is writing to one of his apprentices, Timothy, this young man who's a pastor on the island of Crete. And he says this to him. The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. I'm reading out of that NLT again. The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Man, doesn't that just capture what Jesus is getting at here with the parable of the talents? To free us, that we would flee from sin and and worldly pleasure and live for the glory of God. Live to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Live to see goodness, good deeds, being the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. That we'd be freed from, from sin to be his very own people. People who shine the light of God in the everyday stuff of life, in the way we love our neighbor, in the way we show up to work, in the way that we serve the, the needy, in the way that we share the gospel with friends and family and strangers, in the way that we want to see uh, creation restored. And whatever you're doing, you're a part of it. This isn't just for the preacher or the pastor or the leader, whatever that means. It's for everyone. Whatever work you do, it's a part of God's restoration of all things kind of if it is as long as it's not sinful and and broken in its core whether whether you're delivering mail or whether you're serving and prepping food or whether you're helping people get healthy physically or whether you're helping analyze data or 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 or, you know keep buildings warm these are all things that that are a part of god's restoration of the earth some is maintenance of the created order, and some is actually restoring people to, to their creator. But all of it counts. All of it counts. So I want to invite Jawan back up to lead us in, in a song of worship. And, uh, and I want us to consider, again, soberly, what we want to do, what God's calling us to do with the gift of life that he's given us. There's only one life that we have. Right? We don't believe in reincarnation. There's one life that God's given us. We want to be people who, who make the most of it, who spend it all because he's worthy. And, and whatever the cost, he's worth it. Amen? Amen. Amen.